I've never, um, as a speaker, spoken with these lights on like this. I'm real light sensitive. I feel like I'm in the New York City popo department <laughs> being grilled again. Um, this is the audience participation. Repeat after me. Duh. Oh. Tea. Hi, my name's Halti. I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to be sober by God's grace. Uh, my sobriety day is January 1st, 1983. My home group's Miracle Group in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. We're, uh, we live in Navarre, which is 20 miles away from our home group, and we're near Pensacola, in case anybody wants to know where that is. Uh, it was a seven and a half hour drive for my husband and I to come yesterday. And I feel so blessed. I wasn't supposed to uh, be a speaker. I'd been asked to do a workshop that Mark and I did this morning. And uh, our friend Mari got ill. Mari from Toronto, in case any of you know, or hold her in your prayers this weekend, got ill. So um, Mark was asked to fill her space tonight. And then I was asked to uh, fill Mark's space right now. So for any of you who are expecting to see Mark B, no, I'm not him. I didn't have a sex change operation. I was just the, the, um, the program switched around a little bit. I'd like to thank the committee and, and thank everybody. I can't even see if there's anybody out there. Is there anybody out there? <laughs> I'm so blinded. <laughs> um, I'm so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous. The, the theme of this conference is a new freedom. And uh, for any of y'all who are, who are newcomers or, or new to um, this way of life, uh, there is a new freedom. Of course, the freedom from alcohol, that is such a blessing. I've been relieved of the bondage of alcohol. God has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. And also freedom from the bondage of me, from my head. I used to uh, live in my head. I never knew that I suffered from alcoholism. I never knew that I had a, an illness that um, totally destroyed me and anyone that came in, in touch with me, in contact with me. I have a, a physical allergy and a mental obsession, and I was dominated by my emotions. Uh, my whole life, I was just such a drama queen. Everything was the biggest deal. I can take a lot of physical pain. I grew up, uh, I'm the oldest, and I had six brothers, and and um, I could just take a lot of pain. We, You know, in our house, you didn't say, hello, how you doing? You punched each other in the arm and stuff. And um, so I could take a lot of physical pain. Give me this much emotional pain, and I'm screaming and running for cover because I just, uh, I can't take it. And, um, and I found relief. I found that new freedom in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I found it in this book, one of the best kept secrets in a lot of places in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is called The Big Book. Uh, where, where I got sober, I got sober from up north, and that's where I met my husband. I'm not from up north, even though I lived there for years. And I got sober up there and, and spent the, the first half of my sobriety up there. And, um, and I'm grateful I did. It was, it was a nice place. Um, to be and to be sober, but I'll tell you what, and this is just for me, this is just my opinion, there's nothing like good old Southern hospitality and good old Southern AA. I really, um, I love it. And for those of you who are from the North, I'm not putting down Northern AA. I got sober there, and I'm real grateful for that. Real grateful for that. This, um, in April, no, in March, my husband fell off a ladder and broke and shattered his ankle. Just shattered it. And we're not, you know, we don't have those rubber bones anymore. We're both 58 years old. And uh, he fell five feet off the ladder, hit a privacy fence. He's got two big eight-inch gashes on his back. And then he hit the cement and just shattered that ankle. And he uh, was rushed to the hospital and had some plates put in his leg. And he was on his back. And then um, we were fixing to go to... Um, Monroe, Louisiana, to speak at an AA convention. And the day before we went, he got this big bump on his leg. So he went to the doctor, and the plate was fixing to come out of his leg and pulled the, the bone with it. So he had another surgery and had all these internal rods put in with this space-looking contraption on the outside of his leg. So I won't tell you his story, but for four months, he's um, been on his back and laying at home. And we're partners. We got married in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, when we were both in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're friends and we're partners. I don't know if any of you got to go to the um, relationship workshop this morning that Scott and Linda put on, but that's the kind of relationship Mark and I have as well. We were tired of wishy-washy relationships when we got together. He's husband number four or five, I don't know, and um, I hope it's four, because if it's not, then we're probably not legally married, but um, 
I'm a real alcoholic. Um, we made a decision that we were both in love with Alcoholics Anonymous, and the greatest love affair I've ever had in my entire life is with God. And uh, for any of you who are real scared about the God talk and you don't like it, sorry, but uh, that's the greatest love affair in my life, and God got me sober, and God keeps me sober. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've developed a personal relationship with God, and it talks about in the, in the big book, uh, deep down with every man, woman, and child, uh, is the great reality. That's where we know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we find out that's where God lives, inside of us. And I found that, and I'm so blessed. So uh, Mark and I decided that we wanted uh, a relationship that was based on God and based on the teachings of Alcoholics Anonymous. So for four months, uh, I took my wedding vows really seriously. Well, I have since we've been married, but I've been taking care of them and uh, taking care of, um, you know, the household and everything because he's just been able to lay there. He can't do anything. And then old Hurricane Dennis came three weeks ago. I had just gotten cleaned up from Hurricane Ivan last fall. But we took a direct hit in the bar, and um, God rearranged our yard once more. Really, really rearranged it. And... uh, and so I've been out there. Um, I'm not a wishy-washy woman. I don't have a problem going out with a bow saw and, and a limb saw and all that. Uh, you know, I can work with the best of them. So I'm out there, and I'm working day and night and doing all this stuff. And, and um, finally, my about two or three weeks ago, my attitude started changing. And I didn't notice it, but two of the gals I sobered, I mean that I sponsored, uh, they were talking to themselves, uh-oh, something's wrong with the healthy. And they were afraid to approach me. They told me this later. I don't know why they were afraid to approach me, because I'm not the same person that I used to be. I've been changed in alcoholics nuns, but they weren't quite sure how to approach me. So they went to call my sponsor so the three of them could approach me, and my sponsor was out on a trip somewhere. So finally, um, last week, Debbie, one of the gals, says to me, uh, listen, um, after you, you and Mark come back from Orlando, I'd really like to go away, or, or even if you go by yourself, because for two weeks I've been saying to Mark, I gotta go to Chattanooga. I gotta go somewhere. I just gotta get away. And he'd go, okay. But uh, I was caught up in self pity, so I'd just go out in the yard and work another eight hours cutting down trees. So I could come in and tell him how I had just been cutting down trees for eight more hours while you're laying on the couch. (laughs) But I'm not trying to make you feel bad, loser. So Debbie said, when you come back from Orlando, you need to to go somewhere. And I said, uh, no, I need to go right now. So she called um, a friend, and Scott and Linda allowed us to go and uh, have a little mini retreat, just her and I, at their house, uh, to get me ready for this weekend so that I could be a good mate to Mark, and I could be, I didn't know I was going to speak, so I could become a good mate again, and so that I could uh, just be one of many and get my serenity back. And um, so we went there for a day and a half, and this is a woman thing that we did for us. It wasn't like when men, they like to go out and eat and do all this stuff. We just brought a minimal amount of food and brought our nightgowns and just spent the day and a half in our nightgowns. That was really good. And uh, we just did some long meditations and read the book to each other, and so by... um, by Sunday, I was ready to come here and, and to be a good partner to my partner again. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has uh, done for me. When I first got into AA, I didn't care for women at all. I never hung around with women, ever. Women were just a little too uh, wimpy for me. They were too wishy-washy for me. And uh, didn't like men much either. They were a bunch of losers. But... Um, when I got to AA, I was just, I was washed up. I had nowhere left to, um, nowhere left to turn. Alcoholics Anonymous was the last street, the last house on the street for me. I wasn't one of those people that just came and went, oh, Lord, I'm home. It, you know, it just wasn't like that. I got here and it was like, whoa, this is really different. Um, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I came in in May of 19, um, 81, and I haven't had a drink since then, but that's not my sobriety date because I continued to do some substitutes for a year and a half. But when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a whole lot more men than there were women. And I got here and I saw these men, and I didn't identify because I'm not a man, even though I hated women. And everybody was, uh, this is my story, everybody was white, and I'm not white, I'm Indian. And everybody seemed to, you know, belong to the same religion, the AA cult, and I didn't belong to that religion. 
Um, so I, I knew it was gonna um, it was gonna be some kind of different trip for me, but I was so broken and so wounded that I decided to give it a try just to see. But I wasn't gonna be converted, and I wasn't going to uh, become an AA robot. I, I like to call it. I wasn't gonna become Lassie's mother, um, June Lockhart. I just didn't want to become that. And um, yeah, poor June Lockhart. She takes a beating. Um, I wonder if she's an AA after playing Lassie's mother for so many years. Um, so when I got here, I was ready for that new freedom. I didn't know if, uh, if AA was going to work for me. I had tried all sorts of things. I had tried... Um, um, I had a, a sweat lodge. A sweat lodge is a, a spiritual entity for us. I had tried sweat lodges. I had tried meditation. I had been to some of the most uh, uh, holy of our holy people to, to be blessed. And I had then tried other religions. I had tried um, Christianity. I had tried different churches. I tried everything. And I couldn't stop drinking because I didn't know that I suffered from the illness of alcoholism. I just didn't know that. And, uh, and I found that. I found that out after I stayed around here a while. Now let me tell you, uh, so you know that I am an alcoholic. Um, I grew up the old, well I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, who am I fooling? I didn't grow up at all until I got here, and I was 35 years old when I got here. But I, uh, I was reared up in a family. My father um, was a lifer, um, enlisted man in the uh, Air Force, United States Air Force, and uh, my mom uh, really could have used Al-Anon, but she never looked for it. Um, and uh, I had six brothers, six younger brothers. I was sort of like the second mama in the family, and uh, I was a real weird little kid. We, um, My father, uh, being Indian, um, we hung around with other people of color. We never hung around with white folks. We always hung around with other Indian people or Hispanic people or, or black folks. And um, I, I never quite knew where I fit in. I just never quite knew um, where I would fit in. I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. I didn't feel comfortable in my family, my home, the world. I just, I didn't feel comfortable here. And Mark and I talked about it this morning. Our friend uh, Don P. from Colorado, he's a, um, he passed this spring, but he, was a, he still is a good teacher of ours. He always says that uh, we're spirit beings trying to have a human experience. And I just felt so lost as a human. I just didn't know how to, how to do anything. So as a little kid, I was real weird. I just wasn't like other little kids. And I got lost in the world of reading. My dad was uh, a, um, a functional alcoholic. He'd go off to the Air Force every day. He was a firefighter. And he'd work for three days on and then have three days that he'd come home. And the three days that he was gone, oh, and then the three days he came home, we just all hid in our room. But um, uh, I learned to read. I taught myself to read when I was real, real little because I could get lost in that world. And I always found the place, whatever base we were on, I always found the place that I could be all by myself up in a tree or in the brook uh, fishing or, or catching turtles or frogs or whatever. I, I never heard them. I always just caught them and wished that I could leave with them. Can I come live with you? Um, so I taught myself to read, and I started off reading the books like Nancy Drew, Girl Detective. Now, don't forget, I'm 58 years old. Some of you young folks might have never heard of that. But back then, Nancy Drew was like this really wild girl for that time. She drove a roadster, and she beat up boys, and she was a slick detective, girl detective. And so that was me. So I quickly went through the... Um, the uh, Nancy Drew books, and I graduated right into the adult fiction, right into Lolita um, and um, um, I can't think of their names now, but uh, really adult books, and so I got lost in that. When I was about nine years old, I had my first uh, drunk. We always had a lot of GI gin in the house. That's uh, turpin hydrate, because my father was in the military. So we'd have this GI gin in the house, and my brothers uh, uh, did airplane things, model airplanes, and back then that glue was different than the glue now. So when I was nine years old, I got uh, put on one of my mother's brassiers. I didn't need a brassiere at nine years old, I'll tell you that. Um, 
and I stuffed it full of my father's socks, and I took some of my mother's uh, cool cigarettes, and I grabbed that bottle of turpin hydrate, and I got some Paragore, because a couple of my brother were teething, and I brought some airplane glue in there. I wanted to cover all bases. <laughs> and um, I went in the bathroom, and I'm smoking a cool cigarette, and um, that probably made me throw up right off the bat. And then I started drinking the turpin hydrate, then I, uh, I had seen some older kids put their head in a bag with glue, and I'm doing that. And after five or ten minutes of doing all this, I knew a new freedom. I just knew that that was for me, and I loved it. I was taken out of myself. I didn't care anymore. My mother knocked on the door and asked what I was doing. I said something ugly to my mother. I had been a real quiet, shy little kid before that, and I told my mother, leave me alone. And uh, I said some other words to her, too, that I won't repeat. And uh, and I loved that. So whenever I could after that, my parents were the kind of drinkers that they didn't have a stocked bar. We, we were pretty poor. We were, uh, he was an enlisted man. He was only had three stripes for years and years. My dad didn't know how to read. I taught him how to read when I was about nine. So he never really made rank because, uh, you know, because of all that. So uh, he had come from the hills of Tennessee and just hadn't really been educated or hadn't, hadn't done anything. He went right into the service because uh, our culture were very big on um, you know, the military and veterans and stuff. So um, I learned um, real quick um, that, you know, that just wasn't going to go on. I went out into the living room. My father was reading the newspaper. Now, before that, my father never even knew any of our names. I was girl, and there was boy, 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 boy. And um, I came out in the living room, and I said to my dad, his name was Joe, I said, Joe, I never called him Joe ever. I said, I want to talk to you. And he was reading the paper. And uh, I said, you hear what I said? I've never talked to my father like that. And he didn't answer me. Now, don't forget, I've just been in the bathroom doing all that stuff. I grabbed that newspaper and ripped it in half. I said, now are you going to listen to me? Well, he listened to me. The, the fire came out of his nose, and he stood up, and I ran out to the balcony. We lived in third-floor housing, base housing. And I knew that he was going to whip me bad. So I stood up on the railing, and I said, uh, if you come one step closer to me, I'll jump, and you'll lose all your stripes. And um, he just looked at me. He goes, girl, you're the craziest person I ever met. And as soon as he said that, it was a badge of honor for me. I knew I was. I knew that that was going to be my ticket from there on. And... Um, I made him swear he wouldn't touch me when I got off there, and he didn't. He swore, and he didn't touch me. Uh, he didn't hit me at all. Didn't do anything to punish me. And um, from that day uh, until I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, I used that ticket. I became the psycho uh, Indian chick that lives on the hill. Hunters wouldn't come where I live because I chase them around in my nightgown with a loaded shotgun shooting over their heads. Um, I wouldn't get, if I had those, um, the people that come to the door with the pamphlets, the church people, if they came to the door and I didn't want to see them, I'd just open the door butt naked and say, yeah. And um, I just learned, you know, that how to get people to leave me alone. So from that time, and I started drinking at 13, I started drinking um, full-time then on the weekends. And by the time I was 15, I was a full-blown alcoholic. And from that time until I got sober at 35, that was my behavior. You know, that was my behavior. In that uh, time frame, in that 23 years, I never had a job that I could tell my grandma about or tell the police about or tell the IRS about or anybody like that or my kids. Um, I just did what, uh, you know, what uh, alcoholic woman does to, to stay drunk, and I stayed drunk. Uh, the only time I didn't stay drunk uh, was when I was pregnant with my two kids, but I'll, um, I'll get up to that in a couple of minutes. So uh, at 15, I'm an everyday drinker. My father's working at three days on, three days off. My mother's a cocktail waitress, and I'm dancing in the bars um, at 15 uh, years old. I used to go to this bar uh, called the uh, Monarch Cafe. Now, it's 15 years old, and I never got carded because it was one of those places they liked the, the young girls in there because it brought all the men in there. And um, and then one night I found that uh, I could even make some more money if I got on the tables and, and danced naked. And um, so I did. And I don't remember much of high school. I did go. I know I graduated. Um, but I was the girl in high school that I always had some uh, liquor at school with me. I didn't hang around with other girls. I didn't hang around with anybody in high school because I, uh, I was the person y'all weren't allowed to hang around with. And uh, our family was always that family. 
uh, when I was 13, 13 or 14, we moved uh, off base, and that's when I moved to Massachusetts. And we weren't on base housing. And that's the first time I had ever been around uh, people that weren't in the military and been around a whole lot of, um, of white people. And uh, by this time, I just didn't know how to act or how to be. I didn't know what anyone wanted me to do, so I just got crazier and crazier. My behavior got crazier and crazier, and I just drank more and more and more and more. And um, at 18, I made a decision. Uh, all my decisions, major decisions in my entire life were made in my crazy head or in my um, groin. And this decision was a, uh, a decision that I had thought about it, and I just couldn't live in that town anymore. So I just packed up everything I had in a green garbage bag and a little suitcase, and I moved to New York City. And um, I had never lived in New York City. But I figured that I knew what time it was. I thought I was big and bad like Alan Ladd. So I, uh, I moved to New York City and I get off the bus at Port Authority and I'm like, yeah, this is my new life. This is uh, the new me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it, sorry, I'm gonna make it big here. And, um, I figured I was gonna start my singing career there. And, um, I did. I sang in the delis for my lunch. <laughs> So I get off the, the bus station, Port Authority, and I go in the bathroom, and the stall was real small, so I didn't bring my stuff in with me, and I went in and did my business, and I come out, all my stuff is gone. My ID, my $20 that I had brought with me, my uh, everything was gone, and I just couldn't believe it. Do you know that there are crooks that live in New York City? <laughs> I just was astounded. I found a, a, a police officer, and I told him what happened. He started laughing. He was, this is a joke, right? I'm like, no, this is no joke. So um, he said, well, did you see who took it? And I said, no. So that was it. In New York City at that time, I'm not sure if it's the same. If you don't have an ID, you get arrested a lot. And, well, that wasn't the only reason I got arrested. But every time I got arrested, I didn't have an ID. Um, I lived on the streets there for uh, a couple of years. And living on the streets means I lived on the street. I um, used to ride the subway sometimes when it was cold to have a place, and I, uh, I'd watch in restaurant windows, and when somebody would come out, I'd run in and finish what they had eaten. And, and um, I moved down to the Bowery, and I learned the fine art of spitting on people's windows and cleaning them for them for you know, a quarter. And uh, I kept... Uh, these are prices that I was willing to pay to continue to drink uh, the way that I wanted to drink and not have to work and not have to do anything else. And some other substitutes came in um, around that time, too, and I was drinking and doing other things. And I started spending a lot of time in uh, Bellevue Hospital. I'd be picked up and brought to jail, 12th Precinct usually, and then I spent a lot of time in Bellevue uh, Psychiatric Hospital. Uh, back then, it was illegal to be publicly drunk, so I'd be picked up for that, or I'd be picked up on the corner with all the rest of the girls and escorted to the, uh, the precinct for the rest of the evening. And that was fine because the evening was over anyways and we all needed a place to sleep. Um, so that's the way that um, the route that I took for alcohol. I was willing to go to any lengths to not face reality and to, um, to stay drunk, just to stay absolutely drunk. I started getting really physically ill by this point. Now, don't forget, I'm only 18, 19 years old right now. I was brought in on many psychiatric uh, charges, and I was usually brought four port of strength. And I don't know about you, but... Um, um, but I'm Indian. When I drink, oh, I become Cochise. Um, I just, I just go crazy. I go totally crazy. I go into instant blackouts, and I become uh, really violent and antisocial. The big book talks about how we have that uh, violent antisocial behavior. That's the kind of drunk that I am. And. Um, when I was 18 or 19 years old, I was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic with suicidal homicidal tendencies due to chronic alcoholism, and I just didn't buy it. It was just some old white judge that didn't like girls to have a good time, and and I didn't buy it. Uh, down the road a little ways, I was uh, brought in uh, on two different times. I was brought in and pronounced clinically dead on an alcohol and heroin overdose, and um, I had that experience now. I'm, I'm maybe between 18 and 20, I don't know. Uh, most of my life, I can't remember days and times and stuff. And I had that experience that a lot of us, um, that since I've talked to people now, call it synonymous, I had that experience. I was pronounced dead, and um, <laughs> I hear the doctor say, well, she's, she's gone. And I'm like, who's gone? And nobody's answering me. And suddenly, I'm looking down on myself, and I'm floating above my body on the table. And I went, how did I do this? 
and they're um, they're writing stuff down. She's gone. She you know, expired on such and such a time. I'm like, wait, wait, and I went into that tunnel that white tunnel. And um, in that experience of the tunnel, I was pulled really fast, super speed. Some people say that it's just things that happen in our brain. I don't choose to believe that. I know what happened to me. And I brought, I was brought before uh, the presence of God. And um, I was in this place <clears throat> that it was just beautiful. I'm not afraid of death today. I'm just not afraid of death because I've been there. And I, I was brought before the presence of God. The, the light was too brilliant. I just... God, are you in here? The light wasn't uh, was so brilliant. And it wasn't like human light. It wasn't like this. It was a, it was like a light through some kind of gauze or something. And uh, um, there were sounds that I had never heard before or since. And there were smells and there were beings, but I couldn't quite make them out. And um, and I won't uh, share uh, a lot of the stuff. Is very personal for me for my life. But I was given a choice of. Um, stay in there, which I wanted to, or coming back, which I didn't want to. And uh, some being uh, said to me, not with words like we use, but said somehow and I understood, that I had made an agreement for two other beings to come through my body and be my children, and those two beings presented themselves. They said, remember our agreement? And I said, no, can't say that I do. And um, they, I was given the choice. Would, did I still want to do that? And I did. And I came back, and um, I was pronounced clinically dead on 1.05 a.m. in the morning. And that same time, my mother had written this down, at the same time at her house where she lived, she didn't know where I was for months and months and months and months. And at that same time, she woke up a little after 1 in the morning, and she saw me standing there. And I was wearing clothes that she did not recognize. They weren't my clothes. I was I was living in rags and stuff that I could get, you know, from the Salvation Army and stuff. And she saw me standing there, and I just looked at her, and I waved, and I said, Goodbye, Mom. And um, she wrote that down. She was so uh, freaked out. She just couldn't believe it. Well, after uh, I had that death experience and I was in the presence of God, uh, it was very humbling. And with uh, most people that I've heard, it's been a life transformation for them. And it was for me, too. But I couldn't live up to that. Soon they put me, I was in a coma for seven days after that. And after I got out from the coma, um, they put me in, they locked me up in the nut ward again. I was always Jane Doe. I had a few aliases. I used to be Eve Silver, too. If anybody's here that I owe money to, it's Eve Silver. Forget about it. Um, but I, uh, as soon as I got out of there, I was so scared. I was like, did that really happen? Um, what am I supposed to do now? I'm supposed to be a good person, and I didn't know how to be a good person. So what I did was, um, you know, what any uh, really spiritually ill person would do, I went to the liquor store, and I got loaded, and I stayed loaded then from then until I got sober in, um, in 1983. Um, th- some things had changed inside me. I, before that, I had no conscience. I could kick you when you were down and, and take your money. But after that happened, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew the life I was living was wrong. So I decided to make some changes, and I decided to have a child, and that would do it. And um, and it didn't do it. Um, it didn't do it. While I was pregnant, I, uh, I knew that I couldn't do all those substitutes, and I knew that I shouldn't uh, drink, but the doctor said to drink a little wine. Just a little wine would help. They didn't talk about fetal alcohol then. It would help relax the fetus, and it would, uh, you know, relax me. So I, to me, a little wine and a little do- a bottle of Mad Dog every night. And so, and I did that. And thank you, God, uh, my child, both my children are all right. Um, and I wanted to be a good mother. I wanted it from the bottom of my heart to be a good mother. I had been good to my brothers when I could. And I wanted to be a good mother. And I remembered meeting them, uh, their spirits. And I wanted to be a good mother, but I didn't know how to be a good mother. Because when it came time to drink or to get high um, or to buy liquor or to buy them milk, um, they lost. And um, that was a sad thing. I decided, okay, I didn't quite get this one. I'm going to have another child. So um, donor number two was brought in the scene. And um, 
I got pregnant again and had another child. Oh, I should tell you, the first one was, uh, I didn't like to go far to get husbands and stuff. So when I was in the hospital, sick with hepatitis for the second or third time, and I was really, really sick and I was contagious, no one could come. One of my brothers brought a friend that I'd never met before, and he was a young friend. And uh, I looked at him and went, yeah, mm, okay. So I, after I got out of the hospital, I made the proposal, and he accepted. And... Um, <laughs> He was really young. He was still in high school, and I was 21 or 22. Um, but who cared? I didn't care about this kid. You know, I didn't care about his well-being. What I I wanted, what I wanted. So uh, his parents were bringing me in on statutory rape charges. So I brought him down to South Carolina, and we got married. In South Carolina, you can get married real young, real short. You can be real short and get married there. <laughs> And, um, of course, that marriage was based on um, just me wanting to, to get pregnant and to not go to jail. And um, then I, I got rid of him because he questioned my drinking. And uh, victim number two came along, and um, we, I had a son. And it was the same thing. I really wanted to be a good mother, but I didn't know how to be a good mother. And, and the second victim was just back from Vietnam. And um, he, he had been a combat veteran there, and he was pretty messed up in the head um, hadn't been um, hadn't met to uh, debrief or anything with any of his his fellow comrades, and he was pretty sick. And he was a, as big an alcoholic as I was, so it was a, an alcoholic marriage made in hell. And uh, we stayed together for uh, 11, 12 years, something like that. And um, before that. My life had swirled down into the toilet bowl, and it stayed there for years and years and years. And now I've got two babies that are down there with me, and um, it was just a—it was a real sad thing. This second man and I um, were involved in the import-export business of certain agricultural products, and <laughs> and uh, my children were exposed to that all the time. You know, they had to see that all the time, and they couldn't have friends come into the house and. And they'd see, um, sometimes them and I would be held hostage at gunpoint with Dobermans holding us down, waiting for money to come. And, you know, that's child abuse. I didn't want to be that kind of mother. I just really didn't want to be that kind of mother. Finally, um, the day came that uh, the marriage, um, I just knew that things were gone from bad to worse. I took, we had uh, accumulated some funds from the import-export, and I took half, and I bought some land, and I started building a little house so that my kids could have a, a little home and um, I started building that house and, and the, the last day that I was married to Michael um, he was supposed to go to the liquor store and get me something in the morning I went to house building school and he, he just sat around looking cute and um, I went to house building school and he was supposed to be uh, so I could learn how to build this house he was supposed to go get me some liquor and he didn't get back in time and when he got back it was about 8.30 and I was supposed to be putting the roof on and I couldn't put the roof on until I had my morning liquor because I was shaking so bad so he got back, and I was really angry at him, and I uh, had a roofing hammer in my hand. I was up on the roof. It was one of those steep roofs. It was only like maybe six feet off the ground. And uh, he said something ugly to me, and I jumped off the roof with a roofing hammer and tried to take his scalp. And uh, one of my brothers was there, and we're a real physical family. One of my brothers was there, and he uh, he threw me off and knocked me out off my ex-husband, and uh, he left, and um, that was my last... Um, no, that was my second to last drunk. I had him. My kids were going to be home from school soon. We lived in the back of a pickup truck for months. Um, I didn't care. I just wanted to drink. My kids were dying. They were so embarrassed. The school bus would pull up. We'd all roll out of the back of a pickup truck. It was me, my ex-husband, uh, our two dogs, our five cats, my brother, his girlfriend, and their two dogs, and my two kids. And we'd all fall out of the back of the pickup truck, you know. We weren't even in Tennessee. We were living up in uh, Massachusetts then. And um, he left, and my brother brought me up the road. I didn't want my kids to see me drunk again, and he dropped me off on the side of the road. And, and um, I, I asked him, too, because I didn't want the kids to see me. I figured by the time I crawled home, I'd be able to be sober enough to say hi to the kids. So I, um, several hours later, I came home, and, and either that day or the next, I was sitting in my backyard, and um, I had the, my kids weren't home this time, so I'm going to spend the next day, and I had the loaded shotgun in my mouth because I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't cut the mustard. I knew I was a loser as a mother. I knew that I was a terrible daughter. I didn't know how to be a wife. I didn't know how to be a friend. I didn't know how to be anything but a psycho, a drunken psycho. So... Um, 
In my drinking career, I've had hepatitis three times. I've had pancreatitis. I've been locked up in hospitals and psych wards, you know, more than I had been out. So I said, I said that alcoholic prayer. I just said, God help me. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this to my children. I can't do this to me. And I said that prayer. And at that time of the year, hawks migrate from up there in the winter, and they're not around. But that time of the, um, that day, I said that prayer, and I looked up. I saw a shadow, and I looked up, and there was a hawk up in the air, and it was flying low. And uh, for us, that means that a uh, hawk and an eagle takes our prayers to God. So this bird is circling low, not low like Walt Disney that he sat on my shoulder, and we say zippity-doo. But um, (laughs) low, he flew down low so that I knew my prayers had been heard. And I I took the shotgun out of my mouth and I was so embarrassed. All of a sudden I felt so embarrassed that God saw me sitting there with a shotgun in my mouth. I felt total embarrassment. And that was a good thing. I should have felt embarrassed. And... and I said that prayer, and I knew that I knew somehow that I was going to be okay. I knew that something was going to happen, and my life was going to change, but I didn't know what it was. And um, I'd never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, ever. I mean, why would I? I hung around people like me. And um, I knew things were going to be okay, and I told myself, after the kids grow up, and leave the house, then you can smoke the shotgun. Then it can be over. Because I knew that I just wasn't going to drink, but my life was going to be hell. But at least I wasn't drinking. And a short time later, several weeks maybe, I was brought to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, a man called me up that I hadn't seen in years. We had been kids together. And the last time I saw him, I had thrown him out of a treehouse and tried to kill him with a hammer. And um, he, uh, he called me up. I hadn't heard from him ever since that time. He never spoke to me again. And um, all through high school, he avoided me and everything, but I hadn't seen him for years and years and years and years. And he called up, and he said, uh, I heard you have a problem with drugs and alcohol. I was offended, deeply offended. I mean, I was just, I'm like, who would say that about me? I forgot two weeks before, I was crawling down the highway, butt naked, trying to get home before anybody noticed. And um, little rural highway. And he said, well, I've, I had a problem with alcohol. And he told me a little bit of his story. And uh, he said, I'd like to take you to a meeting. And I said, uh, what kind of meeting? He said, Alcoholics Anonymous, he told me. And I said, no, I don't think I'll be going. That's not for me. Then he had the hook. I hadn't eaten for several days. I'd sent my kids to their grandparents because there was no food in the house. And I was cutting wood down. There was only, uh, there was only uh, wood heat. And um, I was cutting green wood down every day, burning it in the wood stove. <laughs> And um, there was no money, there was no electricity, there was no indoor plumbing, there was um, no door on the place. It was just pitiful the way I had my children live because my money had to go for alcohol. And he put the hook out. He said, I'll take you to lunch. I'm like, okay, what time? What time are you talking here? And um, he took me out to lunch, and he took me to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I can't remember if my first meeting was at a VA or somewhere else, but, um, you know, I already told you I didn't feel right at home when I went in. I was just like, oh, my God, this is what I have to do. But something sparked inside me. There was a little spark, and I know that it was a spark of God. I know that it was a spark of the Holy Spirit that just lit and said, okay, there's, there's some hope for you. And, um, and I started um, going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I shared this this morning at the um, sponsorship work march, no, sponsorship workshop, Mark, and I did, but I'll do it again because I think it's um, it's for my story. It's important. I didn't like women, so I wasn't going to get a woman sponsor because women had nothing I wanted, nothing, zippo. I used to beat them up in, in women's bathrooms and take their purses. Um, so I certainly wasn't going to ask some woman in AA with her high heels and her purse to help me. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm big and bad like Alan Ladd. I can do a bow saw. I can cut down trees. I, I was a legend in my own mind. And um, so this fellow said, uh, the guy that brought me in, he said, uh, you need to get a woman sponsor. I'm like, Burr, get it. And I've been to a, uh, several meetings. And he said, you really need to, to work the steps. I'm like, I don't need the steps. And he said, well, that's, um, that's how we change in Alcoholics Anonymous. We get that uh, freedom from ourselves by going through the steps. And uh, I said, well, I read them, and it, it's sort of like for simpletons. I said, I'm a pretty bright woman. And um, he suggested again that I, I get a sponsor and go through the steps. So what I did, I said, you be my sponsor. He goes, no, I don't believe in that. I believe that men with men and women with women. I said, well, I don't believe in that. And I believe that you need to help me. And he said, no. So I took off all my clothes. And um, he became my sponsor for a couple minutes. <laughs> and... Uh, You know, that was what I knew. 
that was what I knew. When I wanted to get something my way, hey, you know, whatever. And um, so for a year and a half, uh, I continued to remain very ill in Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't drinking, but I was still, one time at a meeting, they, they told me I didn't have to leave. I could stay, but I couldn't bite people anymore. Um, the guy next to me leaned over and he said something ugly to me. And I grabbed his hand. I gave him a bite like a pit bull. And... Um, and I always wore my scalping knife with me, too, just in case anybody asked me out for coffee. They'd, I'd pull up my skirt a little and show them the knife, and they'd be like, never mind. Um, I'd never scalped anybody in my life, but it was a, it was a nice visual for me. Um, so uh, I just stayed sick in Alcoholics Anonymous for a year and a half, and at the end of that year and a half, um, I begged God to relieve me of my desire for all the other substitutes. And he did, just like that. And that's my sobriety date. My sobriety date is when I haven't done any substitutes or alcohol. And that's uh, January 1st, 1983. And um, my life began to change in ways I couldn't believe. Now, that first year and a half I was in AA doing all the substitutes and being a, um, big and bad, um, I was going to a lot of meetings. I was going to a meeting every day, sometimes two a day. But when I uh, really came into Alcoholics Anonymous and jumped right into the middle of the uh, program, I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous started off as a program-based spiritual entity. That's how it started when Bill and Bob started this uh, years and years ago. And in a lot of places now, it's turned into a fellowship-based social entity. And uh, that first year and a half that I was going to AA, I was in the fellowship uh, social part. Oh, I didn't go out with anybody or anything, but I just went to meetings, went to meetings. There's a lot of lies in AA today, and one of them is meeting makers make it. Well, that's a, that's a bald-faced lie. Uh, meeting makers make it if you have a sponsor, if you work the steps, if you live by spiritual principles, if you let God into your heart and change everything about you. Yeah, then meeting makers make it. Another lie that Mark talked about this morning was take what you want and leave the rest. Well, you know what? If I took what I wanted and left the rest, I'd still be one sick package because I won't do this, I won't do that, I might do this, maybe that. Um, so there's another lie in Alcoholics Anonymous. Another one is there are no musts in AA. Well, how come in my book, the first week that I uh, was sober, I counted in my book and I put a red uh, rectangle about 51 instructional musts. You must do this or die. Now, that doesn't sound like a suggestion to me. That sounds like, you know, a must. So um, that first year and a half that I wasn't sober in AA, and then the next uh, six months where I was sober, I went to some wishy-washy meetings. I went to meetings where they were more fellowship-based. They were more into the, the dances. and Not that there's anything wrong with dances, but, you know, the crowd don't drink and go to dances. They were more in the... Um, <laughs> They were more into the fellowship mode and not into the program, because this is the program right here. And uh, so I started seeking out stronger AA because I wanted to get well. I wanted to develop a relationship with God, and I wanted to be a mother to my children, and I wanted to be a daughter to my to my parents, and I wanted to be a sister to my brothers. And um, so I started seeking out people. I asked a woman to be my sponsor, and a um, wonderful woman. I still uh, have a relationship with her. Uh, she was my sponsor until she moved away and uh, she gave me the best that she could give me and I should share about this this morning uh, the best that she could give me at the time there weren't a lot of uh, women were um, that were sober for any length of time now what happens to all these women that get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and they get all these blessings and all these gifts and then they sail off into the sunset it's sort of like you know sex you get yours and forget about the other person um, they just disappear and don't care about the newcomers. Well, I don't want to be one of them. You know, I want to be here. I want to stay here and be here for the newcomer. And um, I'm very active in... I'm very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we were talking, Cliff and Mark and I were talking at lunchtime, and and um, and I know people like this. And I, I don't want to become one. I'll make every effort not to. That uh, it's a it's a blessing. It's a gift to be asked to speak at a conference or at a roundup or at a convention. And uh, Mark and I are asked um, pretty often to do that. But that that this isn't my AA. This is a, an added benefit for me that I get to be invited here. For any of you new people, we don't get paid 
paid as you know to be speakers or anything like that. We're not um, we're not big shops. We're drunks. We're recovered alcoholics that are asked to do certain things and we do them. Uh, Mark and I are very active in our home group. We're very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Right from the beginning, I got involved in service work. I sponsor women, a lot of women. I've taken a lot of women through the steps of recovery. And the way that I sponsor, it's outlined in this book, you know, The Best Kept Secret. Uh, I don't use all those forms and booklets and, uh, you know, this and that. Um, when I someone asks me to sponsor them, I read uh, right from the beginning of the book, and I read the book to them, and I explain what words mean, and I uh, explain what concepts mean. And there's a lot of old-fashioned words in here that a lot of new people don't even know what they mean, like uh, going through the ringer. They don't know that it's a reference to a ringer, the old ringer washing machines our grandmas had and stuff. Um, so uh, that's that's what I do in alcoholic stems. I love it. I just love it. Um, so I, I asked this woman to be my sponsor, and she gave me the very best that she could give me. Uh, she taught me what she had been taught. She goes, well, read Chapter 5 a few times, and then just do that inventory. And I was like, okay. But I was uh, baffled, because I didn't know Mr. Brown. I was like, what? Um, <laughs> And, and the, uh, the, the three columns that were there, uh, I did those three columns. I didn't know you were supposed to turn the page, and there was a fourth column that I looked at. What did I do wrong? What was, you know, what could I have done differently? I didn't know that. So I did the best inventory I could, and uh, before I did it, her and I each ate a half a pound of M&M's girl thing and went down by the river and got on our knees and did a third-step prayer together. And she goes, okay, we'll just do that inventory and get it done. And uh, I did it, and I got some relief, but it wasn't the uh, it wasn't the relief that I got uh, down the road a little bit when I did a, a real fourth step, as outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's when that's when the relief came. Um, when uh, I met a man in AA, and I was very new, very new. I was like nine months sober, and uh, I met this guy, and. Uh, he turned out to be a teacher for me, somebody that I don't ever want to be like. And um, he invited himself over to my home, and uh, I said, well, how long are you sober? And he goes, well, if you've got good sobriety, you don't talk about your length of sobriety. I'm only nine months sober. I'm like, oh. And I said, do you have a sponsor? And he goes, that's none of your business. I'm like, oh. Well, if you're going to see somebody in AA, find out if they have a sponsor and what their home group is and if they, how long they've been sober. Very important. So... Um, Two days later, I come home from school, and he's in my house, and he goes, you're a single mother, and, and uh, I know you and your kids live in poverty. Um, I'm going to help you out. I'm moving in. Now, I'm in AA for nine months, and I think, well, you know, maybe this is what God's will is for me. <laughs> so my kids come home from school. They go, who's the loser? And... Um, <laughs> I said, oh, his name is Frank. They go, Frank what? And I said, oh, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know. <laughs> and my kids are like, Mom, are you brain dead? What has happened to you? I don't like these changes. So he ended up staying for a short period of time. And in that short period of time, he uh, stuck me with a knife. He poured boiling water out me. He broke um, all my ribs, turned my rib cage four inches, broke my breastbone, and broke every foot uh, bone in my foot. And I didn't, um, only one time I broke his face. Um, but I thought, I really thought, and this is so, this shows how ill I was. I thought that God was testing me, that God wanted me to go through this so I could prove that, you know, okay, and that would atone for all the things I did. That is ridiculous. That is totally ridiculous. The God of my understanding doesn't want that kind of nonsense to be done. Uh, I went to a guy that was five years sober, and I told him what happened. I said, I'm going to have him arrested. Either kill him or have him arrested. And he said, no, we don't have people arrested in AA. So I got some real bad information from some really sick people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, my point being, be real careful, you know, uh, getting involved with somebody. Find out who they are. Don't just listen to what people say. Find out who they are and what they really do and how they, they act in their life. Uh, I had already dug a big hole in the backyard, and I was going to kill him and dismember him and put him in the hole. And right around that time, I met Mark, and um, he didn't dismember him. But um, I met Mark, and we became friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, one day, he asked me what had happened to me because I kind of limping. And I was big and bad like Ellen Ladd. I don't tell anybody that I've just been beat up. How embarrassing is that? Um, and, and it's a thing with women. When you get beat up, it's embarrassing. It's like getting raped. You don't tell anybody about it because how embarrassing, you know? What? No, you've been violated. So um, I said to Mark, oh, I just uh, slipped on the ice. 
and um, he said, um, he hurt you, didn't he? I'm like, oh, well, no, not really. So anyways, um, that night, or that next day, Mark went and visited with the fellow, and I've never seen him again. I, um, <laughs> he spoke to him a little bit. And, um, two years later, by this time, after that happened, Mark's and my friendship cut fire, and we fell in love, and we courted for, uh, for six years. Because after that experience, uh, um, you know, and me thinking that I had to had to put up with it, I couldn't tell anybody because nobody ever did that to me before. And then in sobriety, I'm letting this loser do this because I really, I was so ill. I thought I couldn't even tell my sponsor. I was so embarrassed. I was just so embarrassed that I could be in a position like that. So uh, Mark's and my relationship caught fire, and um, we just we have a wonderful friendship. Uh, six years into our relationship, he asked me to um, to marry him, and I said, "Well, let me think about it." Okay. And um, he said, "Well, it was uh, it was August or September. It was September." And he said, "I said, when would you like to get married?" And he said, um, "In uh, October." And I said, "Next year." He goes, "No, in two weeks." And I went, "Oh, okay." So uh, he had a surprise for me. And he took me out to the uh, Second American Indian AA conference. It was a conference for everybody. It was all uh, Indian speakers and stuff. And it was out in Las Vegas. And we went out there, and I. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. I was 12 years sober, and uh, I had never said the, the Lord's Prayer because I thought it was just too Christian a, a prayer for me. And we were at this convention at the end of the at the end of the uh, first meeting. Everybody's holding hands and they're saying the Lord's Prayer, these you know like a thousand Indian people. And I was like, well, hmm, how boneheaded am I? So I started saying that prayer after. And there was a, an Apache holy man there, and I started talking to him. And I said, how nice of you, uh, Grandfather, to, that's what we call our elders, how nice of you to come uh, to this convention and, and bless it for all of us alcoholics. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm an alcoholic. And I was just, I had met nuns and, mo- and monks and priests, but I had never met an Indian holy man that went to AA. So for me, that was a, a big deal. And um, we got married out in the desert. Uh, we found, uh, uh, I'll let Mark tell you that story, but we got married out in the desert under a tree. And uh, I couldn't look Mark in the eyes when we got married because I was so so overwrought with emotion because I knew I had met my spiritual match. I knew I had met uh, a person that's God-centered. And even though we'd been to six years, um, when I first met him, it was with spirit eyes, and I, I knew he was a man of God. And um, by that time, I had, uh, God had entered my life, and I was a woman of God. And we got married, and we have a wonderful, um, wonderful marriage. It's a type of marriage that we've never. Um, there's no nobody uh, holds the power in the relationship. I don't hold the power with sex. He doesn't hold the power with his 250 pounds. Um, we are equal partners. That is, that is the key in it. And it's like um, Linda and Scott talked about this morning. Uh, we, we, we make decisions together based on everything. We start every day praying together. This is... Um, I shared this one out in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, not too long ago, and some guy misunderstood it, so I wanted to make sure I say it right. We we didn't uh, do the wild thing for quite a while into our relationship because we wanted to get to know each other first. Because if you do the wild thing right away, you don't really get to know each other because a new energy has taken over. So we made a conscious decision we weren't going to do that for a while, that we were going to really get to know each other. So when the time finally came that we were going to do that... Um, we, we went somewhere, and I felt like a, a 15-year-old virgin. Um, I was afraid to come out of the bathroom. He goes, what are you doing in there? I'm like, nothing. And he goes, well, you're going to come out? I'm like, turn off all the lights. And um, I had never been like that, you know, but all of a sudden, with a man that's God-centered, and I'm God-centered, and, and we're going to do this. And I came out, and uh, I jumped under the covers. He goes, what are you doing? I said, jumping under the covers. And he goes, do you want to say a prayer first? I'm like, what? <laughs> and he said, do you want to say a prayer first? I said, before we do the wild thing? And um, he said, yeah. So we did the same kind of prayer Scott and Linda talked about this morning. We, we uh, offered ourselves to God, and we offered uh, the beauty that was going to transpire between us to God. Now, let me tell you, that's something different. Then we got in bed, and we were so overwrought with emotion and laughter and stuff. We didn't even do the wild thing. We just laughed all night and talked and just, just had a really great, don't worry, we did constantly later, but we just uh, <laughs> laughed and talked, and really, um, it was something so different, and that's how our marriage is. Both of us put God
God nay a first. Some people might call this codependency, but I put God nay a first, and then I put Mark before me. But he does the same thing. It'd be codependency if only one of us did it. He puts God in AA first, and then he puts uh, me before him. And um, we have a great, a great friendship and a great relationship. And we're both committed to uh, to Alcoholics Anonymous and being of service. We we sponsor a lot of people uh, quite frequently, and we don't seek this out. We'll, he'll end up sponsoring a man, and I sponsor the, the wife, the woman. And we don't sponsor a couple. He sponsors the man. I sponsor the woman. We don't have pillow talk about what the woman told me or what the man talked him. Um, we don't do that. Um, but we have helped. Um, we're not marriage counselors either. But we, when we sponsor people like that, they see how we act and how we live our lives. And somehow it helps them to know how to, to uh, act and live their lives. And, and it's a really wonderful thing. Um, I just want to talk quickly about um, my children. Um, my son um, is 35, 35 years old, and we don't really have much of a relationship. Uh, I saw him this spring. At a, um, I saw all my brothers and my mother this spring, and we don't have much of a relationship, but he told me that he loves me with all his heart, but that he's uh, he just, for whatever reason, he's never been to Al-Anon or anything, that he... Um, we just don't have much of a relationship. We don't see each other. We don't call each other. And it's not by my choice. It's by his. And I have to honor him by giving him that choice. And I made amends to him years ago. And I had to say, um, as I made all my amends, I had to say, um, I wasn't a good mother to you. I wasn't a good role model. Um, I hope that you can forgive me. And please tell me what I can do to make it right and to make it better. And he told me at that time, he says, I love you, Mom. I've always loved you. And just being sober and, and uh, doing the right thing, that that's enough. And he doesn't talk ugly about me to my grandchildren or anything like that. And my daughter, um, I have a relationship with her and, and her her children. I see them uh, three or four times a year. Um, so I do have a relationship with them. Now, my father and I didn't have, I have a good relationship with my mother. She's a wonderful woman. My father I didn't have much of a relationship with for years. My father stopped drinking about um, 10 or 15 years ago, and he did it through... Uh, through the church, he didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that worked for him. It was all right, and we never really had much of a relationship. Uh, um, when I first got sober, I made amends to my father, and he came over one day. And the only way we could do it, because it was very painful for both of us, I just said to him, "I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to say this to you. I need to grow spiritually. Uh, I forgive you. Um, I forgive you." And I know that when we drink, we do things that we wouldn't normally do. And I have done things drinking that I wouldn't normally do that my children have had to forgive me for. And I just said, I forgive you. And my father started crying, and uh, that was the end of it. So flash forward to over the years, he once in a while he'd show up. Mark had never met my father. And um, about eight years ago, we're laying on the couch and, and uh, living a little trailer. We, at that time, we lived in a little trailer. There's a knock on the door, and um, there's, there's a voice going, Healthy, spring hop, you in there? Mark goes, who's that? And, and then the voice goes, it's the sheriff. I'm here to serve you with an old warrant, girl. You're going to jail. This is eight years ago, so I jumped out. And uh, I knew now that it's my dad. And Mark goes, I'm going to go knock him out. I'm like, no, Mark, it's my dad. <laughs> dad, meet my husband. And... Um, and they met. Well, two years ago, my father returned to spirit. He passed on to the happy hunting ground. And uh, his wife called, and they were up in Tennessee. His wife sent my mother, and uh, my mother and father had been divorced for years. And I went up there, and Mark went up there with me. And I was able to stay up there for three weeks. And um, what a beautiful thing it was. My, my dad was real small. He had cancer. He had gotten real small. And, and um, we... Uh, all the mountain people were there, the hillbillies, the, up in Jackson County, Tennessee. All the mountain people were there, and there was all the, the regular, um, the white folks, and there's all the Indian folks, and everybody was bringing food, and then curtains were closed, and it was very somber. And I said, this is not an Indian send-off. So I opened the curtains and let the light in, and I started joking with my dad, and he started joking. My brother started showing up, and they're singing and playing. I did an Indian dance for him, and uh, it was a real beautiful thing. I I couldn't have done that if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I just couldn't have done that because I wasn't that person. And uh, Mark was just sitting there like, whoa, this is really different from an Italian funeral. And, um, <laughs> and um, 
It was. And so one night we're all sitting there and we all told our stories. Mark and I are the only ones now called Sonomous. But my dad told his story, his life story, and I got to see him as he was as a boy. And uh, then my brothers told their life story. And then I told my life story. And, and um, my father didn't know most of that. None of my brothers knew that. I'm estranged from a lot of my brothers because I still drink and get high. And then Mark told his story. And you could see the, the quietness in the room. And then we all prayed. And it was a beautiful thing. Uh, I know a new freedom. I found a new happiness in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not the same person that I was. My mom told me that I'm not the same person she gave birth to 58 years ago. She said that I'm a totally different being. There's nothing the same about me. And I owe that all to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, all I had to do was come here and be open-minded and ask someone for help and get involved in the the steps of recovery and live by those uh, spiritual principles. I don't have anything bad going on in my life. I don't hate anybody. I don't know if anyone hates me, but I haven't done anything ugly to make anyone hate me since I've been sober. Uh, And if I was to be called home today, home to God, it would be, I would go clear. I would go with, um, you know, a clean heart because... uh, I don't want to. I'm not putting my offer in. You hear me, guys? I'm not putting my offer in. But I, I could because uh, I've cleaned up everything in my life as a direct result of alcoholics anonymous. I want to end now with uh, a prayer that I end with. If you just uh, bear with me, it's a beautiful prayer. It's an Indian prayer. Oh, great spirit, whose voice we hear in the wind, whose breath gives life to all the world, hear me. I am small and weak. I need your strength and wisdom. Let me walk in beauty and make my eyes ever behold the red and purple sunset. Make my hands respect the things you have made. Make my ears sharp to hear your voice. Make me wise so that I may better understand the things you have taught my people. Let me learn the lessons you have hidden in every leaf and rock. I seek strength not to be greater than my brother, but to fight my greatest enemy, myself. Make me ready to come to you with clean hands and straight eyes, so when life fades as the fading sunset, my spirit may come to you without shame. Donadada gohani. That means, may we meet again. Bless you.